Another weekend and state lawmakers in Santa Fe are still at work. They are spending time debating and voting on a lot of bills. And that includes one declaring the smell of roasting chili as the official state aroma. Las Cruces State Senator Bill Soles' proposal cleared the Senate floor this afternoon. It had bipartisan support. Soles asked a few elementary school students to testify during the debate. They were his expert witnesses, and for a good reason. I'm Damian Willis. And this is The Reporter's Notebook from the Las Cruces Sun News, a podcast in which we attempt to pull back the curtain on our reporting process while diving deeper into some of the biggest stories of the week. This week, we're talking to New Mexico Senator Bill Souls, a Democrat from Las Cruces. We'll be talking about how he has approached this year's 60-day session of the New Mexico legislature. We'll take a look at many of the big ticket items lawmakers are discussing as they set about crafting an historically large budget, totaling $9.4 billion in recurring spending, an 11.9% increase from the last fiscal year. There's no shortage of ideas on how to best spend that money. And that doesn't include the one-time non-recurring funds that will be doled out this year. Unlike 30-day sessions, which happen in even number years and are focused nearly exclusively on the state's budget, 60-day sessions allow any legislator in the House or Senate to introduce any bill they'd like. As a result, many are pitching their ideas to address some of the state's most pressing issues. Education, public safety, early childhood development, bail reform, water conservation and energy, just to name a few. We'll talk to Senator Souls about all of those things and more. We'll also talk about the state's land-grant permanent fund, sometimes referred to as the Rainy Day Fund, which has long been closely guarded by legislators. Though that may be changing, Souls, who has served in the Senate since 2013, is a retired educator and currently serves as chair of the Senate Education Committee and is a member of the Senate Conservation Committee. We should also talk about Soul's bill to make the smell of green chili roasting in the fall the official state aroma. A bill Soul's sponsored with expert testimony from some Las Cruces elementary students. Senate Bill 188 passed the Senate on a 31-4 vote on Saturday, February 25th. It now has to make it through a couple of committees in the House and a full House vote in order to reach the governor's desk. If passed, New Mexico would become the first state in the nation to have an official state aroma. This week, I'm grateful to have Senator Souls joining us. Senator Souls, thank you so much for making time to join us today. It's my pleasure to be with you, Damien. With about three weeks to go, what do you think are the most important issues that need to be tackled in this 60-day session? Certainly some of the hot-button issues. Education always is an important issue for New Mexico. It is our future. And with as much money as we have, we we have opportunities to continue to increase the investments we're making in kids. Uh, But along with that, making sure that women's health rights are protected. Uh, There's a lot of interest and importance in making sure that our voting access to ballots and and making sure that that is something that 
uh, New Mexico continues to lead in access to the ballot and that our elections are fair and secure. And then there also are a number of things dealing with energy as the country and the world is rapidly changing off of a carbon-based fossil fuels into more renewables, we've got to make sure that the laws and the mechanisms for putting those onto the system, that those are all in place and that we don't get behind as that is so rapidly changing in the world. Can you talk a little bit about your ideas on spending or investing this historically large budget? We had an opportunity to fund everything that money can fix. Uh, Now, whether we will or not, there's always a debate up here that many on the finance committee and some of the more fiscally conservative people think that we ought to put more money away for rainy days and for the future. I'm one that's a bit more, we've got opportunities to make investments in a different future. And so trying to look up and out to what could be rather than just trying to hold on and make sure that just in case the budget goes down, that we've got a lot of extra in the bank just in case. I believe that making investments in our future is a better way of developing a strong future for all of New Mexico as we transition away from a fossil fuel-based industries. And a little more specifically, what what sort of long-term investments could be made perhaps out of non-recurring spending. I know that's always kind of a minefield to navigate because, you know, if you build or you expand broadband, for instance, uh, it has to be maintained. If you build schools, you know, they have to be staffed. (laughs) So, or, or early childhood education centers, they have to be staffed. So a lot of times what we think of as, as kind of that one-time investment, which is so desperately needed in so many areas, it does kind of come with it some recurring funding. Certainly. And and some of the new money that we're seeing does have some recurring with it. Uh, But as you point out, there's lots of non-recurring. And so we need to specifically be looking at those areas where non-recurring money continues to pay off into the future. In my area of education, one of those is to put more money into career and technical education by building career technical centers at our high schools, for instance. Those centers, once they're built, once they're equipped, continue to pay off for our students for the next 20 years. Now, with that does come some recurring costs of staffing them with teachers and some of the supply type of things. But the the really big ticket item is the building of the buildings and putting the equipment in those. We've got opportunities to do that. In the higher ed realm, we've got opportunities to make big investments in research. Uh, For instance, at New Mexico State, they've got proposals to do a research center, a dry lands resilience center that would Uh, provide research at an international level for how to have our dry land, New Mexico is filled with those, be sustainable into the future. That would be a five-year fund that would be, I think the money that I've uh, recommended for that is $15 million. It's a non-recurring and gets spent over five years, but the return on investments of that sort that where we're investing in research and in innovation comes back in Uh, patents, in entrepreneurs, in faculty and staff support for those, and then the long-term investments of uh, making our 
dry lands or grasslands more productive overall, those are long-term investments that have a high, very high return on investment. You also had mentioned about early childhood education and certainly where we need to staff that with people. But some of that is also non-recurring money in actually building the centers that we're able to then staff. Uh, James Heckman, a noted with Nobel laureate in economics, one of his biggest things is the investments that we make in early childhood education have a nine to one return on investments that we ought to be making all of those investments we can. The return, though, comes in five, 10, 15 years from now, but it's a huge return on our future. Right. And it also seems to be the most achievable way for us to kind of turn around educational outcomes in New Mexico, which has put us at the bottom of uh, too many lists to count, to the point that we almost don't want to look at those lists anymore. Yes. And most of the problem of our low educational achievement has more to do with our unhealthy communities. It has to do with poverty. It has to do with lack of jobs and high paying jobs for people and for the parents, which then put children at risk and high quality early childhood education programs deal with all of the wraparound services that the children need so that they are able to achieve well in schools. And we don't have currently due to poverty, due to lack of access to early high quality, early childhood education programs. Many of our kindergartners come into school a full year behind, 20 to 25% behind their peers, that's all preventable with investments in early childhood education. And if we have our kids coming in ready and prepared for school by dealing with those upstream concerns and problems, much of the the low rankings in the state go away. And we are only meeting about 25% of that need right now. And those are places we could make significant investments but they're not going to show up next quarter or even next year. They're going to show up in five, six, 10 years from now. Right. It's, it's about providing more comprehensive support for those most at-risk children at uh, starting at a, a much earlier age. Yes, it's, it's dealing with all of the adverse childhood experiences and the social determinants of health. And rather than looking at them as negatives, if we put them in, then they become positive social determinants of health. If we make sure that kids have a place to sleep, that they're not homeless, that they have food to eat, that they have access to medical care, that they have access to high quality education, that they have transportation to get to appointments for medical care and other things. If we fix all of those pieces in society, then the kids are able to do better and excel in school, which then has we start that virtuous cycle up where it feeds on itself to make things better in society. Staying kind of on the same topic, we are still working to deal with the Yazzie Martinez ruling. How are we continuing to address that? Uh, we're addressing it in several ways. One of them certainly is with the early childhood education, making sure that children are ready for school. We've done a number of things in the education framework where we are directing more of the state education dollars towards the schools that have the largest number of at-risk students. Several of the ones in Las Cruces that are getting additional funding directed specifically to those schools that have the highest need. There also are a number of programs that are beefing up our 
English second language learners or programs for all of them. Uh, certainly, as we're refilling the teacher pipelines with higher salaries for teachers, that makes sure we have high quality teachers in the classrooms rather than having long term subs or under qualified or minimally qualified teachers. That's had a large effect already. We've reduced by about half the number of teacher vacancies we have in New Mexico. And we know that if you have a high quality teacher in the classroom, the students do better. And that all directly affects the Martinez-Yazzie lawsuit. Uh, some of the more long-term things have to do with the teacher training programs and modifying those to where more of the teachers have a stronger understanding of uh, how to teach English language learners, how to work with students of color and from different populations and backgrounds, and even more specifically, the scientific teaching of reading and getting that as part of the curriculum for all of our elementary students that has been shown to greatly Im improve the education attainment and quality of the reading programs. And when children can read, that opens up the world to them and helps them be successful in school. You kind of touched on this a little bit earlier. It used to be that the permanent fund or the, the rainy day fund was almost entirely hands-off. And it was that way for uh, probably uh, over a decade. Uh, it was the forbidden fruit. Is that still the case? What's what's your sense there? The people in the election passed the early childhood uh, or the money coming out of the permanent fund for early childhood education. And a portion of that goes to K-12 education. Uh, those monies do not flow yet. Uh, there are still some additional pieces before we start seeing those. But those should ensure that we have additional money going into education so that when budgets go south, that money is still going to be there. Um, my concern always is that as a legislature that we don't go through and just uh, transplant those funds where the money that we were putting into early childhood and into education, we don't now use the money from the permanent fund and pull those monies out and put it elsewhere. When the people voted for that, they thought and expect that that money is on top of what we are already spending in those areas. And that's one of the things over the next couple of years I'll be watching very carefully that we're not supplanting the funds we're currently putting in, but that these monies are in addition to the monies we currently put into those programs. And beyond the use for early childhood and K through 12 education, is there any appetite to tap into that in any other way? Not that I'm aware of, and I would probably reject trying to do that. Uh, those funds were really put up for the, our future children, and that means our education. The Those funds, we currently have the second most, I think, of any state. I think Alaska might be higher, but the last I heard, it's at something like $22 billion. And people would talk about, well, it's going to deplete the corpus of that if we start taking money out of that. That might be true 75 to 100 years from now. If those monies actually help us improve education and improve the prospects for our children into the future, we will more than make up for any uh, loss in the corpus of those funds through better educated people and improving economy as a result. Right, right. <laughs> in an editorial a few weeks ago, the Albuquerque Journal called this the state's latest and possibly last boom cycle. What do you make of that? I don't know. I mean, I 
if I could predict the future, I'd be a wealthy man. <laughs> that, but, that is what every legislator I've <laughs> asked that question of so far said on both sides of the aisle. They both said, <laughs> you know, I, I'd like to have their crystal ball. That's right. Um, certainly worldwide, we know that fossil fuels, which have been the, the primary funder of the state of New Mexico for many years, that fossil fuels are going to be in decline and not because there isn't enough fossil fuels. There's lots of that and they make new discoveries, but because of the the other ways of, of getting energy through renewables, through some new technologies of deep geothermal mechanisms for electricity is we don't need those and the pollution that they cause. And so the world is moving away from fossil fuels. The real challenge for New Mexico is replacing those and looking up to what could our future be and using that largest of um, boom cycle that we're in right now to make investments in a different future rather than just to hide away money and try and live off our savings in the future. I'm very much one trying to look up and out and trying to make for a different future that is not reliant on the extractive industries. I know. And it's, it's such a tough problem to solve because we have almost no sun and no wind as we've seen the past couple of weeks. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure what you mean. No sun and no wind. You mean the windy days that we had, if anything, the windy days we had a couple of days ago were actually problems for all of the wind generation because they have to curtail so much of it and actually uh, feather many of the wind turbines when the winds get that strong. Oh, um, I, see, I wasn't I wasn't aware of that. Largest, I think we're the second largest or uh, most of the solar potential and seventh largest in wind. And we've barely begun to tap what that potential is. <laughs> as long as we don't have too many days like we uh, have had the past week yes. or so. <laughs> yeah, the damage from the winds the last couple of days were horrific. Yeah, not a lot of fun. Yeah, I was I was being totally sarcastic, but I, I <laughs> had no idea that it actually does create problems. It does. I, I think the wind turbines uh, when a couple of years ago it was one of the best things I've gotten to do as a legislator is I actually got to climb up a wind turbine and up to the nacelle up at the top. It was one of the coolest things I got to do, but I learned lots about that whole industry. And the, once the winds get over about 30 miles an hour, they have to start curtailing some of it and start feathering the blades on it a little bit because there's too much power that goes in wind energy. The amount of energy goes up by the cube of the speed. And so as it goes up, there's a whole lot of energy and it just can't take that much. Wow. Now I want to talk about HB 188, the state aroma bill. Well, it's kind of a fun bill and it's possibly gotten more media attention than many more consequential bills, including many of your own bills. It actually did serve an important purpose. Tell us about the students from Monta Vista Elementary and how they were involved. Sure. And, and it's got a couple of, I think, very good purposes. Uh, what you're talking about is uh, they had an enrichment day in November and invited me to come and spend the day with the fifth grade classes there. And as a teacher, when I went out and was trying to engage 100 fifth graders sitting on the floor of the library, I quickly started asking them and kind of quizzing them. What's the state bird of New Mexico? And of course, one of them raised their hand that it's the roadrunner. And someone knew that the black bear was our official uh, mammal. 
Uh, I asked, and actually there was a, one of the students knew that the tarantula hawk wasp was our official insect. And I started on some of the more quirky ones, like anybody know what our state question is? And someone did know that it's red or green, meaning red or green chili. And about that point, as I recall, there was a student said, oh, I love the smell of chili roasting. And I'd always sort of thought about that that would be an interesting thing to add. But I asked him, it's like, hey, would you guys like to make history with me? What if we have the official state aroma of the smell of chili roasting? And the kids perked right up and it's just started going into a brainstorming of ideas of how that might be and why that would be. And I started talking about, is that going to be good for economic development? And some were like, well, yeah, because our chili farmers will make a lot of money. And someone else, yeah, people come here to go to the Hatch Festival and they come to, for our chili. And so it morphed into let's run a bill to make that the official aroma for the state of New Mexico. It has been so much fun for me working with the students, but also working with the teachers who have indicated that they didn't know and understand the legislative process. They have learned so much, which will change their teaching for the rest of their careers as well on how to teach civics and engagement and government and the other things that come up occasionally with the students. I've had the students as my expert witnesses on Zoom. And then this last Saturday, three of them came up with one of the teachers and a parent and were on the Senate floor with me as my expert witnesses as the bill moved off of the Senate floor and is now over to the House. And so it, it's been a lot of fun for me, but certainly they're excited to see all of the national and international media coverage that we're getting. They've been interviewed by media. And I told them when we get this all the way through and up to the governor, I'm going to do my best to get the governor to come down and sign the bill at the school with the students. And so they're all very excited about all of it. That would be fun. It's got so far, it hasn't faced much opposition at all, for the most part, uh, a little bit from from the uh, southeast uh, side of the state. <laughs> Which, and most of that has been focused a bit more on why are you wasting time? And, you know, we don't have that much chili over here. So why do it? And, and most of it was was pretty weak and not not very there wasn't any real organized opposition to it i think most people and when i talk to people and the students talk to people about this bill immediately people get this smile on their face they all know the aroma almost before i tell them what it is it's like it's got to be chili roasting right and they all have their chili story and so we actually have a follow-up plan with the students that either later this year or next year the students are going to gather everyone's chili stories that we've heard through this process and also others to work on possibly a book, a real book on how important this obsession New Mexico has with the smell of chili roasting. That's great. And it really has turned it into such an educational experience for for those students and their teachers and everyone who's been involved in the process Thus far. Now, as I understand it, we're recording this on Tuesday, February 28th. It's got a couple of committees to clear in the House, and then it's got to go to the House floor for a vote. Is there any indication from the governor if she's going to sign it? Uh, everything. I, I haven't talked to the governor directly. I've talked with some of her staff. They are watching it. They are very interested in it. Uh, the governor over the last couple of years has had some 
playful bantering with the governor of Colorado as to who has better chili. And I'm sure that uh, this just adds to it. The FIR, the fiscal impact report that was written for the initial bill has actually gotten a lot of media coverage from the media industry for how well that was written and fun. The writer made some comment about that this may bring additional tourism from Colorado, which oddly seems to think it's got better chili than New Mexico or (laughs) something quirky like that, where most of the time FIRs are pretty dry. There was some really good sarcasm in the FIR for the bill. Yeah, it it really was funny. And I saw on Twitter where uh, I can't think of her name, but uh, she had posted that she got it, you know, assigned to her. And as I recall, I, she wasn't sure if it was a joke, but she wanted to have fun with it. So she just kind of had fun with it. And yeah, she asked permission. Can I have fun writing this? And was given permission. It's like, sure, show us <laughs> what it is. And yeah, she's gotten a lot of really good attention for it as well. Yeah, uh, it, it, that's a that's a really great aspect of the story, too. Senator, if you got a gimme where you were guaranteed a unanimous vote of approval, what would you ask for? What's on your wish list? Oh, my, I haven't haven't really thought about that. I think. I've got a bill. It's not a bill. It's a, a resolution to codify in the Constitution the Child's Bill of Rights. Ten things that we would guarantee to every child in the state of New Mexico. Guarantee of food, of housing, of education, of transportation, of uh, health care, of having a mentor, of you know, having a high quality life. That's the one that that would transform New Mexico for a long time into the future is if we really believed that taking care of our children was a fundamental right in New Mexico and that we made sure it happened. That's a pretty good one. Dan McKay, who, of course, covers the legislature for the Albuquerque Journal, was recently on a news program, and I, I think it was on KUNM, perhaps. And said of this year's session, the partisan makeup of the chamber hasn't really changed, but the personalities are different. It has been less combative with fewer debates. What's your read on that? I think early on, I think that was the case. I think we're starting to see that shift. And some that's a shift that happens in every session as you get further into the session Tempers get a little bit shorter. Uh, People's patience starts to frazzle a little bit. People start realizing that some of the things they care about are not moving and that other things are. And people tend to head to their corners a little bit more. That's what I'm seeing some in the Senate. I think that's unfortunate. I think uh, we would do better if we really worked on the things that we agree on and recognize they're ones we're not going to agree on. But when people try and uh, delay or blow up the system or use the, the rules to obstruct the legislative process, that doesn't serve anyone well. And the people lose trust in their government. Now, rapid fire, talk to me a little bit about some of these other hot topics. Let's start with bail reform. Bail reform is not an area that I have a whole lot of of expertise in. Uh, we passed some, some, some bills a couple of years ago on bail reform. Most of that puts the onus on 
the district attorneys and on the judges as to whether somebody is a danger to society or not. I think some of the data that I have heard about, there are some judges that are doing it very well and other judges that don't want to and essentially are just sending all of them out without holding dangerous people. Uh, That's more on an individual basis. And I think on different counties and who are the judges as to whether they are taking that responsibility seriously or not. I don't think from what I've seen that we need to reform that. What we need is to go through and enforce what is currently on the books. What about the reproductive health clinic plan for Las Cruces? I think it's very needed. I think, uh, the women of New Mexico uh, need to have comprehensive uh, health care for women, of which that certainly works to take care of, but also so that we're able to provide services for people that are coming from other states. New Mexico uh, is right nearby, and the more that we can provide that for them, I think is a great service for the for the state and, and just reinforces that women have an opportunity or not an opportunity, a right to, to determine their own outcomes as far as their health. How about uh, budget compromises? What what has that process been like so far? The budget processes up here are always a bit opaque. There are lots of decisions that are made behind closed doors with only a few people, and many times not even the legislators. Some Many of the staff of the LFC come up with the budget and hand it to legislators who just accept it as is. I think that's one of the serious problems we have in the legislature and something that I would like to see some major reforms on to where the budget really becomes the budget of the legislators, not of the LFC staff. Is there, (laughs) I think about 30 day sessions, uh, is there even enough time for that to to play out? I don't know. That's uh, something over on the finance committee. I think there are some changes and reforms that are coming. Uh, Some of that will also be there are some movement of some things that I think have a good chance of getting through of potentially moving to, or at least putting it to the voters to move to two 60 day sessions that are not restricted on the 30 day session, just to budget items. Uh, 60 day sessions tend to be busier and fuller than they are because there's two years of pent up need for non-budget issues to be heard. Right. Right. Um, Here's something that I know you're passionate about as a member of the Senate Conservation Committee, um, talk about water conservation, particularly along the Rio Grande. There have been several of the federal cases, and I think we're waiting for the final judgment, but I, from the things, and mostly it's what I read in the paper and and in the news, but there's finally been some settlement with Texas so that we can move away from the litigation that's going on all of the time. Uh, The problems, though, is New Mexico... We, though we actually export more water than we bring in, we are a desert state and lots of our agriculture is based on a snowpack up in Colorado. And with uh, climate change, and certainly there is less water than when the rules were written. Uh, some estimates are that we have almost doubled the allocation over the amount of actual water that's there. The people that claim make claim to it is double what the the actual amount of water would be. That's got to change. And I think uh, we're seeing that on the Colorado River compacts that are being renegotiated because we can't keep using water like we have. And as we're pumping water, that we are depleting our underground aquifers because there's not enough surface flow coming down the river. Right. And unfortunately, we can't legislate uh, snowpack or rainfall. So uh, we kind of have to deal with what we work with what we've got. 
And, and we need to make sure that we're doing smart water policy. Uh, there are a number of times everybody's worried about it and their policy starts to be developed. And then the summer monsoons come and everybody goes, oh, well, maybe this is the change back out of this drought. Uh, the drought that we're currently in is a drought that is more severe than we've had for hundreds of years. And so it's just being exacerbated. And down in our area in particular, we are pumping so much water for the pecan trees. And pecan trees are not something you can let go fallow in uh, bad water years or low water years. And so we pump more of the aquifer in order to keep the trees alive, right. uh, hoping that we'll replace it in the future. But the future indicates that climate change, things are going to get worse, not better. What about security, particularly in light of the Solomon Pena arrest? The, yeah, that was a real hot topic when we first came up here because it was still pretty new and pretty raw. I have not heard much about that recently over the last couple of years. And some of it was through the COVID years. And as a result of the the uh, attack on the Capitol on January 6th, the insurrection, that security at the Capitol is tighter than it's been, that people go through a metal detector now. Guns are not allowed in the Capitol as they had been in the past where it was very open before. And so I don't, it may just be that it feels more secure, but I, I think everybody is pleased that that's the case. And so there, there used to be whenever there were gun control bills or whatever, there'd be a number of people in the audience with their guns sitting right on their lap, purely to intimidate people that were on those committees. And that's not allowed anymore. And I think that's a good thing. And let's go there next to, to gun control. It seems like some of the measures that have been introduced this session have been met with mixed results. Yes, and I've got three bills on gun control. I think there is a real need that we need to do some things, and we need to do things that are going to make sense. Some of the bizarre rulings out of the Supreme Court recently that at least many legal scholars that I've talked to really scratch their heads about but those have thrown some real wrenches into trying to do anything on gun control. That's very frustrating. I was horrified by what happened in Nevalde and felt compelled. We need to start doing something and we've got to get a handle on the proliferation of guns in our society that we somehow seem to think that we are safer when we've got guns, when all of the data is contrary to that. And, and I have to say, I'm a gun owner. I have guns and I hunt men and uh, use them for those purposes, but the, the proliferation of the assault weapon style ones, of the handguns, of the, all of the other guns that are not used for hunting that people think make them safer, the data does not support any of that. Talk about the uh, shakeup this year in committee chairs. There was some of the, the shakeup, and a lot of that was uh, one particular member that had some uh, serious allegations and other kinds of things, which caused a little bit of a ripple effect through some of the other committee chairs. But the finance chair is still the same. The conservation chair is the same. Judiciary is the same. I still chair education. And Benny Shendo still chairs the business and tax committee. And so the only one that really had a, a change was the rules committee, where Katie Duhigg is now the committee chair instead of Daniel Ivy Soto. Now there may have, there was a lot more shift over on the House side, but you know I I can't I'm have trouble keeping up with the Senate side, much less what's going on the House side. When right, I'm up here. right, yeah, I I totally understand. And finally, talk about serving minority communities and what 
sorts of policies can be made? What sort of effort would help us better do that? I think it gets back to the the same thing that across the state, we want to build healthy communities. We want to make sure that quality of life is good in those communities. I'm very proud living in Las Cruces, where we have a majority minority city and take care of people there. And that lots of what our city council is doing is building a sense of community and recognizing the, the needs of people, uh, the work on trying to fix the homelessness of making sure that people have food and transportation and lots of those kinds of things that build community. So I'm not sure it's even so much of concern about minority communities, but building capacity in all of the communities. Uh, Many of the ones that have the least, though, certainly are minority communities. So they're the ones that will get the most of the benefit. Is there anything that you'd like to add that we haven't talked about today? Um, I'm not sure there, there are other things. You've covered quite a wide range of things. Uh, probably the biggest ones, though, there, there are a number of bills coming through on elections uh, that will directly affect people and their voting. But as much as anything is, is trying to make sure that people have confidence in their elected leaders who are up here and participate in that process and in that system and knowing some how to go about doing that. Uh, Having an informed electorate and people who are engaged in their own democracy leads to to healthier communities and a a healthier uh, democratic process. Thank you again, Senator Soltz, for your time today. Damien, it's always a pleasure chatting with you. Likewise. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Reporter's Notebook. We also have a newsletter sharing reporter stories about, well, about how we report stories. You can find all of our reporting in the Las Cruces Sun News. An enormous thanks goes out to Senator Souls for joining us this week. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and many of the places you find your favorite podcasts. Thanks to KOB4 in Albuquerque for the extra audio heard in this week's episode. This has been the Reporter's Notebook from the Las Cruces Sun News. I'm your host, Damian Willis. This week's podcast was written and produced by me. You can also find all our local reporting brought to you daily by reporters who live and work in Las Cruces at www.lcsun-news.com. For all of us at The Sun News, thank you for the privilege of your time.